Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey everyone, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I hope everyone's summer was good or great or awesome. Uh, Hope you did a lot of cool things. Hope everyone's staying safe out there since things are kind of popping off again out in the world. But uh, yeah, happy spooky season. I'm recording this on September 1st, so Halloween is only two months away and it's uh, my favorite time of year. And, uh, you know, it's high time to get spooky. (laughs) So, you know, bring me the horror movies, pumpkins, apple picking, corn mazes. I'm all about it. I do have a a sad announcement, though, if you haven't heard already. uh, Mothman Festival was canceled again for this year. I was originally planning on attending, but had recently, even before this announcement, had decided I probably wasn't going to make it since I had just done the 12-hour one-way drive to Morgantown, West Virginia for Cryptid Bash. And that's only, you know, on the border of Pennsylvania. And Point Pleasant is another, like, two, two and a half hours south from there, (laughs) southwest-ish. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably, schedule-wise, not going to make it. But I also waited way too long to find lodging by the time I was looking on like Airbnb and stuff. I think it was probably late June, early July, and there was like nothing available (laughs) within like an hour or so of Point Pleasant. And I was like, eh, you know, it's maybe next year. So hopefully things will be on the right course in 2022. And I'm hoping I can make it then uh, because it sounds like it's a super awesome time. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things, right? And I know a lot of people who were going to be vendors at this event and, you know, they, they depend on the money they make from selling their merch at Mothman Festival since it's one of the biggest, you know, cryptid themed uh, festivals in the country. So definitely check out who was going to be vending at that event and try to support them by buying some stuff online. A lot of them have Etsy shops or, or just online stores and it would be super helpful to support all the independent artists and content creators who, you know, depend on this kind of income to live. (laughs) And there's a lot of amazing stuff out there uh, that people make. So I'm sure it would mean the world to them if you offered some support. Hopefully uh, this isn't a harbinger of doom for other festivals later in the fall. I'm still planning on vending at Fortean Fest in Maine in early November and CryptidCon in Kentucky uh, later in November. So hopefully things will be settled down more by then um, and we can rock out at those events. Uh, So we'll play it by ear, fingers crossed. But yeah, hopefully everything goes off without a hitch for those. But anyway, this episode is going to be another long one. I 
got into researching and I originally was hoping to get this episode out a little bit sooner, but I kept having to do more and more research <laughs> and things just kept going down the rabbit hole a bit because that's how I roll. But uh, let's cut to the chase and I'll quit my rambling. <laughs> All right, so today's topic is one I'm excited about, and we're going to learn all about ghost lights. And it's kind of fitting because it's September now and spooky season and all that. So if you've listened to previous episodes of the show, you might remember me mentioning my experience I had when I was a kid. I was about eight or nine years old, and I saw this weird orangish beach ball sized orb of light zip through the woods next to uh, the house I grew up in one evening. Um, I was out swimming in the pool uh, that was behind the house and my mom and her friend were, you know, hanging out on the, on the pool deck, uh, chatting, smoking cigarettes, uh, making sure I didn't drown. And it wasn't like too terribly late um <laughs> probably later in the summer i would imagine when the sun starts setting earlier uh but basically i saw this light come from uh, a northerly direction and it just kind of headed south and it was literally like a one to two second thing that it like zipped through several hundred feet of forest and whatever it was you know it was going through dense forest and i spent a lot of time in those woods. So I knew there was, you know, tons of, uh, older trees, younger trees. And it was, wasn't like the easiest place to navigate through as a person. Um, and you know, I was like, huh, that was probably nothing. And I kept on swimming. And then a couple minutes later, I looked over towards, uh, the woods in like the Southern direction, uh, back towards, uh, my old house. And it came zipping back from, from there. And at that point I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the hell that is. I'm going to go inside. And I'm, I'm not sure if, if my mom and her friends saw it, uh, and we've never talked about it, but it, it definitely weirded me out quite a bit. And to this day, I don't have an explanation for what that was. Uh, really don't have any kind of idea. Uh, like there's, we had neighbors through the woods and stuff, and I don't think it was like a, a spotlight or anything uh, from there, especially with leaves on the trees obscuring the view of of any neighbor's houses. And then they were like hundreds of feet away. So who knows? Not too far from that spot, though, in the woods, there there was a, a section that was a little bit swampy, uh, like this really small, like bedroom-sized pond uh, that was a little bit of like a, a spot. There was like this whole area that was kind of like groundwater that would come out from the hill. And eventually it formed down into a river on in the, like the lower elevations on the hill that I, that I lived on. But, you know, I don't think it was um, swamp gas or anything like that because I spent a lot of time in, in those woods and I, I never saw anything like that before or after. So definitely a weird occurrence, uh, for sure. And more recently, um, the previous place I, I lived in that I rented, um, my partner and I, uh, thought we would see this 
small little orb of light late at night hovering low to the ground in the driveway. And this place was like pretty far out in the woods. Um, so we were like, oh, what the hell is that thing? Um, but we're, it turned out to be uh, a stray cat <laughs> with like a white tuft of fur on his chest. And it would get illuminated by uh, the moonlight if the moon was out. And um, yes, we we did take in the cat eventually. And he lives with us now. And he's uh, he's a uh, he's a good boy. He's he's a big chunk for sure. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, I figured um, it was it was time to take a look at this phenomenon and uh, look at some of the more documented cases of these weird mystery lights and, and see what's up with them. So I'm going to start off with some history and etymology here. There's a lot of different names for ghost lights, and it's a centuries-old worldwide phenomenon. And there's stories in North America, Europe, Asia, Australia, and probably pretty much every continent on the globe. And these bizarre lights are most often observed within forests and graveyards, as well as megalithic sites lakes, bogs, swamps, uh, and in remote desert areas. And what they look like seems to be pretty consistent across the board. They're usually described as being around the size of a basketball on average, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, and can appear in a few different colors uh, like whites, yellows, uh, oranges, reds, and and blues, pretty much, you know, across the spectrum. Um, But there's also instances where people who have seen ghost lights or spook lights as uh, another name for them and they'll change color as they're being observed and another thing about these lights is a lot of the times they will appear over water or just above ground some stay stationary and just kind of hover and others will move and wander as if they're being controlled by Uh, some kind of consciousness or intelligence. And in a lot of cases, people who witness them will try to get close to see what, what it is. Uh, But the lights are uh, reportedly and historically rather elusive and will move away out of reach if anyone tries to get close to them. And then in other cases, when a person gives up and starts to leave, or even if they cite them and they don't go after them, there there are instances where people will report that the light will start to follow them instead, which is kind of creepy. So it turns out that the earliest records, at least from European history, date back to at least the 16th century in Germany. And back then, the Latin term ignis fatis was used to describe these lights, which translates to foolish fire in English. And apparently uh, a German word, Ehrlicht, was used to describe this phenomena before the Latin term was used, which means wandering light. So clearly, even hundreds of years ago, people were seeing these weird lights if they had words and descriptions of them. In English folklore, these things are known as many different names, uh, and English folklore is rich with stories of these these weird ghost lights. Uh, People will call them jack-o'-lanterns, which is 
connected with Halloween, of course, uh, Jenny with the lantern, Friars lanterns, the hinky punk, the hobby lantern, and probably most often as the will of the wisp. And that's just in England. Now, the common thread here is that these lights are said to be atmospheric phenomena witnessed by travelers at night, and swampy areas and marshlands were particularly popular haunts for these things. And according to the legends, these lights kind of appear like flickering lanterns, and in folklore they're said to represent hope or a goal that someone is trying to reach, but they can't, uh, which is kind of interesting that there's stories of people trying to reach out to them to see what they are, but then they just keep going further and further away. Uh, and alternatively, they could also be malevolent and lead to high strangeness and weird occurrences. This comes from an old belief that these lights were the result of an elemental spirit or a fairy carrying a lantern around to lure people into the wilderness to mess with them, kind of like trickster spirits. And if they were successful, the light would go out and then said person would have a high chance of getting lost or hurt. And, you know, this reminds me a bit of the fist. And, you know, this reminds me a bit of the missing 411 topic again, which I covered on my last episode of Strangeology Beyond, uh, my Patreon segment. And maybe there's a connection there with missing persons getting lured into the woods by these weird lights. It sounds like a bad time either way uh, if you do see a mystery light. So maybe it's best not to run after one if you see one, uh, unless you have backup, of course. But on the flip side of that, part of the legend also mentioned that the mischievous nature of these will-o'-wisps... Let's try that sentence again. On the flip side of that, though, uh, part of the legend also mentions that the mischievous nature of these will-o'-wisps can turn into benevolence and they can also be known to help guide lost people home, which is also interesting because there's some similarities there uh, with stories of uh, little people um, that reside in, in forests like puckwudgies and that kind of thing. So what are these things and is there an explanation for them? Well, there's a number of theories out there. Many of these weird lights can be explained by natural phenomena like bioluminescence or oxidized phosphine or methane gas, uh, which appears to have a glow if it gets ignited. Uh, and that's like when you hear about a UFO sighting being explained as uh, swamp gas. And sure, that could fool anyone who doesn't understand what they're seeing and in most cases, I'm sure that's the explanation. But what about lights that aren't a result of nature doing its thing and instead it's something that appears intelligent uh, or intelligently controlled by some kind of consciousness? This is where more bizarre ideas come into play. And there are theories that these ghost lights or spook lights, whatever you want to call them, are paranormal in nature and are potentially connected to ghosts, fey folk, elemental spirits, or even extraterrestrial activity. So we're going to look at uh, some of the more well-known cases of this phenomena 
and see if there's any connections we can make and what we can conclude. So let's go. Okay, the first ghost light on this list, and perhaps one of the better known ones, is the Hornet Spook Light. This one is also known as the Joplin Spook Light, the Tri-State Spook Light, the Ozark Spook Light, or just simply the Spook Light. Uh, And this phenomenon has been cited regularly for at least close to 200 years between the towns of Quapaw, Oklahoma, and Joplin and Hornet, Missouri, respectively. And despite people looking into this for like years and years, nobody really knows what this thing is. Not scientists who have investigated it, or even uh, apparently the Army Corps of Engineers looked into it and they couldn't figure it out either. Uh, People who have seen this enigma describe it like the typical ghost light, basically a wandering, bobbing, orange orb of light or a ball of fire and this one is said to travel east to west along this four mile stretch of dirt road which local residents have dubbed the devil's promenade and it's been reported that the best time to see this light is between 10 p.m and midnight and it's it's funny you know it seems like Places that get get named after the devil are always associated with some kind of high strangeness or paranormal activity. So there you go. Uh, You know, or they at least have a weird legend, right? So what's cool about this light is that people have actually gotten pictures and video of it over the years. And I'll link to some of that in the show notes so you can check it out. The earliest stories of this light being seen actually come from Native Americans who traveled along the Trail of Tears back in 1836. And later in 1881, the report known as the Ozark Spook Light was published, which is the first written document uh, detailing this phenomenon. Explanations for the Hornet Spook Light are typically the same as what I've mentioned already, natural things like swamp gas or atmospheric electrical discharge, but One theory seems a little bit more prominent for this case, which is explained by cars' headlights. And I can see how people could mistake cars' headlights for a weird paranormal orb, Uh, but the problem with that theory is that apparently this light has been seen uh, way before cars were invented, unless there was like a, a horse and buggy rocking lanterns that had the candle power of a modern day car headlight. I mean, who knows? I'm sure stranger things have happened. But since this area is along the New Madrid fault line, uh, the most rational explanation is that it could be electrical discharge coming up from the depths of the earth uh, due to the tectonic forces there. And this phenomena has been associated with earthquakes before around the world. So it is a possibility that that's what's behind this particular ghost light. But what about the legends? As it turns out, there are a few that delve into the more paranormal side of things. And the first comes from the Native American folklore of the area where a young Quapa woman fell in love with a man and her father would not allow her to marry this this guy. Uh, so the two of them decided to run away and elope, but the father caught wind of this and wound up sending a party of 
warriors after them. And the story goes that they were about to be caught and they got cornered on a cliff above the Spring River and they decided to join hands and they leapt to their deaths below rather than being caught and separated. And shortly after that, the Hornet Light was said to appear, which people started associating that with the spirits of these young lovers. And that's not the only one. There's a second legend that tells of a miner who had returned to his cabin to find that his wife and children had been attacked and kidnapped by Native Americans in the area. And the light in this instance is said to be the spirit of the man searching for his family, shining his lantern along the road, uh, looking for them for eternity. And there's a, another legend, the, the last one I'll go over, that says that this light belonged to an Osage nation chief that was decapitated and is holding a lantern high above where his head was supposed to be to search for his head. So some pretty gruesome legends there involved with this light, but it's all really interesting. A lot of different and interesting ideas and legends, but ultimately the answers seem to come up short to explain it definitively. Legends of America has a great article about the Hornet spook light and even some witness testimony that I'll read for you all. I'm just going to read off one short one here since there's a few other spook lights we got to get into. This account was from a woman named uh, Diane Melton who submitted the story in 2005, uh, but I'm guessing her experiences happened quite a while ago. So she says, The spook light at Hornet, Missouri. My great uncle, Garland Middleton, owned a museum there for many years. He inherited the nickname Spooky from the former owner. The spook light has been studied by scientists from all over, the Corps of Engineers, the Corps of Engineers, and many more people, and for over a hundred years, it's never been explained. I've seen it many times myself, and I've seen it split into four glowing balls, turn red, then blue, and then it disappeared. It'll be right in front of you, and then disappear, and then be right behind you. It literally went through cars. Sometimes it comes out and sometimes it doesn't. The best time to see it is after midnight when it's really quiet. And they tried to close the road to the public several years ago. Now, I think her account definitely illustrates, you know, what these lights are capable of. And it really makes you wonder, is this something tangible, rational, or is there something more paranormal behind it? It's really quite interesting. Now, the next set of lights brings us to the other side of the world because this light phenomenon, like I said, isn't isolated only to North America. It's, it's global. And this one is from Thailand. Uh, they have their own ghost lights there called the Naga Fireballs. And they're also known as the Mekong Lights or the Phayanam Lights. Now, these glowing balls of light appear around the same time every year, and they're seen rising out of the Mekong River along the border of Laos, and they continue to levitate high into the sky before disappearing. And it's not just located to one section of this river. These lights are actually seen over 
a stretch that's 160 miles long. So there's a lot of sightings of these things every year. And there have been reports of similar lights in nearby small rivers and, and bodies of water as well. So if you ever find yourself in Thailand and want to witness these for yourself, uh, word is the best time to see them is around the end of Buddhist Lent, or I'm going to butcher this, but Wanok Fonsa, which happens around late October. Now, these lights are described as being more along the color of red and orange, and they're like the size of small sparkles of light uh, up to the size of a basketball. And it's been reported that as many as several thousand can appear on any given night. And according to the local legends there, it's said that these balls of light are the fire breath of the Naga River Guardian. And Nagas are a kind of half-human half serpentine deity from the, from the netherworld, uh, which comes from uh, South and Southeast Asian folklore. So what are these lights and why do they seem so prolific? One explanation points towards festival activities. The, every year, this area actually has this big event called the Fayanak Festival, where thousands of people actually come out to celebrate and observe these fireballs come out of the Mekong River. And there's some videos and documentaries about it. If you check it out, it's like this wild time, this big event, and it's super noisy and everyone's super excited. So you definitely, definitely go watch some videos of it. And a number of scientists who have looked into explaining this phenomenon believe that it's something more along the lines of a natural occurrence like phosphine or methane gas bubbling up from decaying organic matter on the riverbed. And when it hits the air, it somehow ignites and then this ball of fiery plasma will just float up into the sky and then dissipate. Uh, the problem with that theory is that it takes a very narrow set of controlled conditions for that kind of thing to happen, apparently. Methane alone can't spontaneously combust like that and actually requires phosphine and phosphorus tetrahydride, which typically isn't found in nature. And even when this is replicated in a lab, the light emitted from the fireballs glows a bluish green and gives off a burst of black smoke where the Naga fireballs have that signature reddish-orange color. Now, apparently, the physics that it would take suggests swamp gas is not the likely explanation behind these strange fireballs. And then there's the school of thought that the Naga fireballs are just a man-made hoax, which is perpetuated to keep the festival happening and, and increase tourism and business to the area. <laughs> Apparently during the festival in 2002, there was this documentary crew that came out uh, that made a, a documentary called Crack the Code on the ITV channel, which showed the investigation team traveling over to the Laotian side of the river where they saw soldiers firing tracer rounds out towards the river and uh, skeptics jumped on that as the explanation. And despite not hearing the gunshots, it was argued that the people uh, cheering when lights became visible would drown out any sound of, of gunshots coming from 
the other bank of the river a half mile away, which, you know, I, I definitely believe that because people in the videos you can see online are pretty, pretty festive for sure. <laughs> so it would be probably hard to hear a gunshot from a half mile away. But either way, that documentary didn't explain why the Laotian soldiers would be doing that in the first place. Like, why would they be helping uh, Thailand <laughs> in this instance? And they also weren't seen firing uh, the tracer rounds again, apparently. And there's also, you know, all sorts of different spots of the of the river over, you know, the course of that 160 mile stretch where people see uh, see these fireballs come up and especially in inconspicuous places. So there's definitely a mystery there and uh, doesn't really seem like anyone knows for sure what they are. The next one on this list is uh, going to bring us back to the States. Uh, this one is the Mako light of Mako station, North Carolina. Now, this ghost light started to be seen around the late 1800s along this railroad track, and most accounts of the Mako light describe it as looking like a railroad lantern, and there's actually a folktale behind this one. Um, the, the tale describes a train accident that caused some death. The version of the story most often told is that on a rainy night in 1867, there was this train conductor named Joe Baldwin, and he was in the rear car of the train. And when the train was getting close to Mako, he realized that this car had somehow become detached from the rest of the train and was free, free riding it on the, on the tracks. And uh, he was aware of the schedule of trains and knew that there was another train that would soon be coming up behind him. So he apparently had run to the back of the car and got out onto the platform on the back and started waving a lantern from the outside platform uh, to alert the oncoming train uh, that there was this runaway car. And unfortunately, the other train's conductor failed to see the lantern signal and the oncoming train and detached car collided, which resulted in this guy, Joel Baldwin, becoming decapitated and obviously dying. And then in the 1870s, a few years after this accident, locals and railroad workers began to notice a weird light that would appear near the tracks, bobbing up and down around five feet off the ground. And the stories spread that Joe Baldwin's ghost had returned to look for his missing head. Much like similar ghost lights, if anyone tried to get close to this light to see what it was, would find it evading them the closer they would get to it. And then curiously, years later, the lights started to multiply in 1886 after an earthquake in Charleston. And the increased activity of these lights would occasionally lead to trains actually having to stop on the tracks since conductors driving the trains weren't always sure if these lights were an oncoming train or not, which is really interesting. And as the legend of the Mako light grew over the years, uh, of course, people came out to investigate it to try and provide an explanation. And uh, in 1964, paranormal researcher Hans Holzer conducted an investigation 
And although he apparently never witnessed these lights for himself, he believed that the lights were indeed the spirit of this Joe Baldwin guy who didn't realize he was dead and would go up and down the tracks trying to warn trains about runaway rail cars and also look for his missing head. Um, Hans, if you didn't know, was an Austrian-American parapsychologist and an author who wrote dozens of books on the supernatural and the occult and is probably most well-known for his investigation of the Amityville Horror House. So when researchers began to look into the case of Joe Baldwin, interestingly, uh, they couldn't actually find records of anyone with that name in the area dying of an accident in 1867. However, uh, there were records of a train conductor named Charles Baldwin who was killed in a similar accident involving a decoupled runaway train car in 1856 uh, near where Mako Station would be built. And although Charles didn't lose his head, he actually still died from the injuries he sustained during this accident. So perhaps the story morphed into the story of Joel Baldwin, you know, where details change slightly over each retelling. And either way, it's it's interesting to see, uh, at least with this story, that there's probably a real origin for it. So what's the explanation here? Well, as it turns out, there used to be a swamp near this run of tracks. And in 1935, that swamp was filled in. And after that, sightings of the light became much more rare, like the source of the light was being kind of snuffed out. <laughs> uh, and it's thought that much like other lights, that it was probably swamp gas or car's headlights. But interestingly, the section of the track most associated with this legend, along with an old trestle bridge, uh, were removed in 1977. And after that, the Mako light stopped appearing. So maybe there was something more to this light after all uh, that could have been more paranormal in nature. Maybe there was spirits connected with the tracks or this trestle bridge, you know, or maybe it was just swamp gas. And when things got filled in, the gas wasn't able to be released. We just don't know. All right, just a quick break here for a Patreon member shout out. If you didn't know, Strangeology has a Patreon and I'm a small operation still. I don't have any sponsors or anything like that, uh, but I do have a Patreon and I have a group of really awesome patrons who help make the Strangeology podcast possible and do the, the really cool stuff that I'm doing. And if you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology to check out all the different rewards and benefits that I offer. I've got six different tiers uh, and there's a lot of things you can get. There's merch discounts, uh, exclusive merch, bonus extensions to the end of episodes, a discord server access and more. So please check it out. If you're interested, it would mean a lot to me. Big shout out to Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Sarah Sherg, Marine Asmat, Prepared Wolf, and Gail Frederick. So thank you all for being awesome patrons, 
And uh, if anyone out there wants to sign up, it helps me out a ton and I appreciate you so much. All right, now let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back. Now, I uh, I can't talk about North Carolina without talking about the elusive brown mountain lights in the Pisgah National Forest. Now, these lights are probably some of the most infamous unexplained mystery lights out there. And a lot of people associate these lights with UFO and paranormal activity. And there's been a lot of studies done about the brown mountain lights. These lights have inspired songs and uh, many different paranormal researchers over the years. Many people who see these lights will describe them as glowing orbs that dance around the mountain and travel at speeds far too fast for them to be simply headlights from passing cars or just like a floating ball of gas. So stories of these mystery lights apparently date back hundreds of years to uh, the Cherokee and Catawba folklore that tells of a great battle between two tribes on the mountain. And the lights are believed to be the lost spirits of women wandering to find their loved ones who never returned home from the battle. Now, the earliest known modern accounts of these lights began in the 1910s and specifically from an article from the Charlotte Daily Observer dated to September 13th, 1913. And this article tells of a fisherman who claimed to see mysterious red orbs of light just above the horizon every night around Brown Mountain. And shortly after this story was published, a USGS survey worker D.S. Stewart traveled out to the area and apparently determined that the lights were simply mistaken for train lights off in the distance, Um, but that explanation alone wouldn't hold much water, as we'll find out. A few years later, in July of 1916, rainstorms caused this massive flood uh, that devastated a whole portion of western North Carolina, And it wiped out all these railroad tracks and knocked out the power. Uh, And even even though no trains were able to travel through this area until tracks were rebuilt, people still reported seeing these mystery lights. So in 1922, another investigation by the United States Geological Survey was conducted But in addition to train lights, the report also cited that cars' headlights, uh, campfires, and other stationary lights were the likely culprits uh, behind this phenomenon. But decades later, in 1977, researchers conducted an experiment where they turned on a 50,000 candle power floodlight towards Brown Mountain from 22 miles away, and those on the receiving end said they could see this red circular light floating just above the horizon. And this experiment concluded that what people were seeing was actually just ordinary man-made lights that were refracted through the Earth's atmosphere, giving the appearance that they were floating above the ground. So beyond that, uh, there are many people who still believe that there are 
otherworldly explanations for the Brown Mountain Lights that range from interdimensional beings, UFOs, to underground extraterrestrial bases or top-secret military installations. And perhaps more disturbingly, some people have associated sightings of the lights with people going missing, and there is a thought that there could be something like alien abductions going on. And during my research, there was I w- was reading around all about the Brown Mountain Lights, and there's a bunch of blogs that are out there perpetuating this story that uh, in 2011, 27 people, including three police officers, allegedly all went missing during this one night when hundreds of lights were seen around Brown Mountain. Um, and I, I looked into it, and I'm pretty sure... 99% that this story is bogus uh, because if that many people went missing all at once, you know, that would probably make national news unless, you know, there was a cover up or something. <laughs> uh, but if you run across that story in your own research, definitely take it with a grain of salt. I looked into it and couldn't find any news stories or legit sources to verify those claims. Uh, whether or not like other single people have gone missing on this mountain it's hard to say. It's possible, but uh, I wasn't able to find any specific uh, stories relating to that. One interesting thing to note, however, is that in the 1950s and 60s, Project Blue Book, uh, you know, the big government study that looked into the UFO phenomena that was advised by J. Allen Hynek, actually conducted a major case study on the Brown Mountain Lights. And apparently, to this day, that report is sealed. It's still classified. So whatever the findings that were made in those investigations, it's not available to the public. And you really got to wonder what the government found out uh, during those investigations. And maybe there is a little bit more to these lights uh, than we're being told. Now, uh, later Later on, and I, I suppose more recently, like in the, the 90s, early 2000s, this guy, Joshua P. Warren, and his group, the League of Energy Materialization and Unexplained Phenomena Research, uh, otherwise known as LEMUR for uh, the acronym, uh, are based out of Asheville, North Carolina, and they did this long-term study researching the phenomenon of the Brown Mountain Lights. And they actually have captured some pretty compelling photographic and and video evidence of it. And based on their study, uh, they believe that the lights might be caused by natural plasmas similar to ball lightning that result from geologic forces and atmospheric conditions on the mountain. And this could be caused by something like spring water running through the inside of the mountain, which could create an electrical charge on the rocks and crystals within it, like uh, magnetite and quartz. And then during the evening, when the rocks cool off and contract, it causes uh, an electrical charge in the form of these glowing balls of light. And Lemur claims they have reproduced this phenomenon uh, in their lab on a small scale. Uh, But, you know, I'm going to leave this one eyewitness account which lemur has on their website before we move on here which is pretty interesting 
One evening in 1988, my best friend and my then five-year-old daughter went with me to the Overlook on Highway 181. It was crowded there, and we couldn't see anything after about an hour. So we and a young couple decided to drive up to Table Rock. When we got there, everything was so quiet. The mountains stretched out below us, and we became very much at peace. It was just breathtakingly beautiful. After about another hour, we still hadn't seen anything. My daughter was snuggled up to me between my legs trying to stay warm. My friend Lee and I were sitting beside each other. The other couple was sitting in front of us, over to my left, sort of below us on another rock. I leaned back and we started looking at and pointing at the constellations in the sky. Lee asked me about the Big Dipper. Just as I pointed out the handle and the North Star, what appeared to be a very bright light fell out of the Big Dipper and came down and went to the top of the Brown Mountain Range and then split into two lights, which then raced to either end of the mountain and danced and swirled around, splitting into more lights. We were dumbfounded. I finally leaned over to Lee and asked her if she saw what I saw, and she just nodded her head. The other couple was sitting there with their mouths dropped open. When the lights split into several more, I can't tell you how many, we all just started talking at once. It was quite exciting. Even my daughter was aware that something pretty magnificent had just taken place. We watched until the lights faded out about 20 minutes later. We waited about another 30 minutes, but saw nothing, and it was getting quite late, so we decided to leave. So that's a pretty intense uh, anecdote about these lights. And these ones actually kind of came out from the sky, apparently. Uh, so if you're ever around Brown Mountain, there there is this spot where people go to to go observe them. So definitely, if you're in the area, check it out. The next case I want to talk about is the Hestalen Lights of Norway. Now, this one is pretty interesting because... There's been a lot of scientific study of this phenomenon, and these lights occur in the Hestalen Valley of rural central Norway and can be spotted in the evening and the daytime. People have reported seeing these lights wandering through the valley or high above it in the sky, and they come in bright whites, yellows, and red varieties of color. According to eyewitnesses, they can appear for just a few seconds to more than an hour, apparently. And like the other lights I've mentioned, they've been observed to move at very fast speeds, uh, but they can also just hover stationary in the air. The earliest reports of them date back to the 1930s, with some time periods having higher concentrations of sightings, such as the early 1980s when people were reporting seeing these things up to 20 times a week. Uh, but since the 1980s flap of sightings, people reporting them, it's it's dropped off to about only 10 to 20 per year. So it's not quite a, an intense of a period now as it used to be back in the 80s. And because of this, in, in 1983, Project Hestalen was launched. And pardon my pronunciation, this was it was launched by uh, UFO Noriga and UFO Sveria, which are uh, Norwegian and Swedish UFO groups. And this organization has spent many years investigating the lights to explain the phenomenon. And this has generated 
a number of working theories. Uh, however, there still isn't a consensus as to what exactly they are, just like all the other spook lights out there. So one theory says that there's some little understood phenomena that hydrogen, oxygen, and sodium uh, connect and combust somehow, and this is what creates the lights. Uh, and this might be due to large deposits of the element scandium, which is found within the Hestalen Valley. And scandium and scandium iodide are actually used in lamps and for film with cameras, which helps produce a similar tone to natural sunlight in photography. So if this element becomes hot or electrically excited, it can actually emit light. Part of this theory suggests that scandium dust in the area will ignite rapidly due to acids in the air and the burning ball of dust will get swept up uh, by air currents into the sky and move around uh, until the scandium is used up. Now, probably the most recognized photo of a Hestalen light, which shows a 30-second long exposure uh, image and also has this color spectrum imposed on the bottom of it. This image was taken by this guy Bjorn Hauga in 2007, and after uh, spectral analysis was conducted on it, and it was determined that whatever it was, it was made of silicium, iron, titanium, and scandium. So perhaps there is some weight to that theory about scandium being uh, the primary culprit in causing these weird balls of light. There's also the idea of piezoelectricity, uh, which is kind of like uh, Joshua Warren's idea from Lemur with the Brown Mountain Lights, where an electric charge accumulates in materials like quartz crystals and, and certain types of ceramics or even organic matter like bones and DNA. And as a result of some kind of uh, me mechanical stress uh, like rock strain, earthquakes, it, it will cause this burst of light balls. <laughs> and uh, there's other theories too that range from plasma balls as well as misidentification of aircraft, cars, headlights, even though the area is very much remote and unpopulated. Also mirages or astronomical bodies, which yeah, like I'm sure there's these explanations can account for a number of sightings like these, uh, not just in the Hestalen Valley, but all, all over the world. But either way, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, and uh, it's brought tourism into this region of Norway, and there's literally only 100 people that live in this, in this area. It's that remote. So, yeah, it's like if you look on Google Maps, there's just like nothing around for miles and miles and miles. And there's actually uh, a couple of places in the valley that you can go rent for overnights if you want to take a trip to go see the Hestalen lights for yourself. One of them being the, it's called the UFO camp and another one called the UFO height, uh, respectively. So if I ever found myself in Norway, I probably would want to <laughs> do an overnight just to try and see what these lights are. It sounds kind of cool, uh, for sure. But let's get moving on to the next lights. So jumping back to the U.S. again uh, for one final case before we close out the episode. You can't talk about the mysterious light phenomena 
of spook lights without talking about the Marfa lights in Texas. And these are probably some of the most famous ones. Now, stories of this phenomena near this small West Texas town begin back in the 19th century. These lights are known to appear during any time of year and in any kind of weather. And the spot that they appear in is about nine miles east of Marfa in this spot called Mitchell Flat. The Marfa lights generally appear in reds, blues, and whites. Um, and usually in this area, the Mitchell Flat, it's pretty sparsely populated and it's super rugged terrain. Uh, and with every other mystery light around the planet, the source of the Marvel lights has been hotly debated over the years, with skeptics like uh, Brian Dunning claiming with full certainty that this case has been solved. And, you know, spoiler alert, he thinks it's just car headlights uh, seen from a distance on Highway 67, um, which I'm sure a lot of them are. And there was actually a study done by University of Texas Dallas students in 2004 and again by scientists from Texas State University in 2008, which actually showed repeatable uh, data in cases of the lights appearing exactly where cars were passing on the highway miles and miles away. And it was determined that at atmospheric distortions at long distances gave the effect that these lights were behaving strangely, bobbing up and down, and, and just moving weird. And there was also the explanation of people having campfires out in the desert, which I can accept those as explanations, but come on, that's super boring. We gotta, we gotta get weird here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, despite the skepticism, the Marfa lights have attracted tourists and UFO enthusiasts alike who hope to catch a glimpse of them. The town of Marfa even constructed a viewing platform in the area where the lights are seen most often, and it also hosts an annual festival celebrating them. And it's funny, I, I went to check out what the, uh, the area looked like on Google Maps, and I was like, huh, there's this old decaying airfield right where the viewing platform is. So I looked up the history behind it, and sure enough, it's uh, this old airfield, the Marfa Army Airfield, which was built during World War II in 1942 and was abandoned after the war. And interestingly, its history goes back even further to the early 1900s. And in 1911, it was this army camp named Camp Marfa, where the U.S. Army Cavalry were stationed to patrol the Rio Grande during the Mexican Revolution. And it had a few different iterations and usages over the years up until World War II. And, you know, if there's a paranormal explanation behind some of the Marfa lights, I have to wonder if there's some kind of connection there, uh, since there's, you know, connections with weird lights around military installations even today. <laughs> um, you know, but again, there's totally reasonable and rational explanations for these lights. And the stories and the mystery that surround them, I think, are, are what's a lot more important to people. And in the end, explained or unexplained, it's, it seems to be good for business.
that's where I'm going to leave this episode, folks. This was a fun one to look into, and there's no shortage of stories and legends about mystery lights. So it was hard to narrow down. I probably could have added in like a half dozen more, but <laughs> I, I think, what did I do? Like five or six of them? Uh, I, maybe we can do a follow-up episode at some point. But, you know, it, it, it seems like there's there's some believable explanations for this phenomenon and some more out there ones too, which are honestly, you know, the more fun explanations for them, which I'm obviously into, but sometimes you got to lay it all out there and, and try to get to the bottom of things. I still don't have an explanation for the weird light I saw growing up uh, that shot through the woods next to my childhood home. Maybe it was swamp gas or maybe it was something otherworldly. I just don't know. Anyway, thank you as always to all of my listeners who download this show and share it with friends and family and people you don't even know. It helps me out a ton and it means a lot. I can't believe I'm closing in on close to 20 episodes now and uh, so far it's been a wild ride and I have so much more I want to talk about. So, so I'd love it if you stuck around and keep listening to the show. And if you're new to the show, hello and welcome. I uh, definitely give me a follow over on my different social media accounts if you haven't already. You'll mainly find me on Instagram, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok as well. Uh, try to post different content or similar content on, on all these different platforms. Honestly, it's I'm a one-man show, so it's uh, sometimes it's hard to keep up with all, all of that. Uh, I periodically do merch giveaways, usually uh, through Instagram, so you definitely want to follow me there. Uh, if you uh, check out my merch shop, I, I, I've got a lot of different uh, shirt designs, uh, mugs, stickers, enamel pins. I recently got my uh, my new enamel pins featuring the Fresno Nightcrawlers in, and those are super fun, and people seem to dig those a lot. And I also restocked on my Mothman Stay Weird enamel pins, which I sold out of uh, a lot faster than I was going to initially. So thankfully, my supplier got me the next run of them. Uh, I was hoping to get them for Cryptid Bash, but <laughs> they take a while to make and it didn't really work out in my favor in that case. But I've also got some new Homestate Cryptid shirt designs in the shop since my last episode. And I recently busted through several designs, which I'm going to be releasing over the next couple of weeks for, for that uh, collection of designs. And I also have a new really cool shirt design in the style of my Fresno Nightcrawler and Mothman Harbinger shirts that I'm going to reveal publicly very shortly. Maybe within a couple days of this episode dropping? We'll see. <laughs> I'm waiting on a test print to make sure all the details are coming through. So yeah, anyway, that's, that's it for announcements for this episode. Uh, if you want to ever get in touch with me, you can email me at uh, strangeologist at gmail.com if you have any feedback or suggestions, or you can always hit me up in my DMs. They're always open on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, definitely hit me up if you have a story. I'm still obviously looking for uh, more stories for a future episode. If you want to call in my hotline or email me in a story, you can find my number over on strangeology.com and leave a message on my voicemail and if it's uh longer than three minutes you can call back it'll cut off at the three minute mark and you can always call back and and pick up where you left off i'd love to hear your stories of weird stuff that you've experienced so thanks again for listening and for my patrons 
Stick around after the short break I'm about to take and tune into Strangeology Beyond, my exclusive segment for the show. I was inspired by the uh, the hornet light appearing on an old dirt road. So we're going to talk about spooky haunted roads around the world since, you know, it's spooky season. So stay tuned for that. All right, everyone. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. And as I always say, keep it strange. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking around for Strangeology Beyond. Uh, for this segment, I'm going to get into some more weird stories and high strangeness. So.